You're listening to PQ, Pastoral Quotient, Disruptive Christian Leadership. I'm your host, Father Charles Clement. Welcome to another episode of Pastoral Quotient. Today I've got my old friend, Father Vincent Nyman. Vince and I go way back. We were seminary classmates together, both ordained in 1999. We've vacationed together, had long talks together, and just kind of grown up in the priesthood together. Vince is a priest for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. He's a really interesting guy. Um, I was talking to some friends about this podcast, and I was trying to describe Vince, and he really is sui generis. He's, he's one of a kind, and I mean that in the best possible way. What can I say about Vince? Well, he's a lifelong artist. And by artist, um, we're not talking like some guy that dabbles. Uh, Vince probably could make a living as a professional artist, and in fact did before he was a priest. Uh, he's got a very distinctive style. I'm looking at one of his paintings right now in my sitting room. Uh, it's this crazy picture of Joshua crossing over the Jordan to come and take possession of the promised land as the sort of spirit of Moses looks in the background. Priests are blowing the seven trumpets while the lamb that was slain, whose blood leads us into the true promised land, is flowing down a hillside with the background of a bright yellow sun. Um, That was in Vince's Bolivian phase and um, just very unique. From where I'm sitting, I can also see another painting of his. Uh, It's Christ leaping out of the tomb on resurrection morning. It's called Radiant Christ. Uh, I have the original of his painting, The Spirit of Elijah, which is Elijah kind of in an ecstatic moment uh, after the confrontation with the Baal worshipers. Anyway, I wish I could show you the images. Uh, I can't really describe them, but my point is, is that the guy is a pretty amazing artist and very, very creative guy. He's one of these guys that, what's the opposite of poser? Posers try to make you think that they're good artists, musicians, painters, writers, etc., but they're really not. Um, Vince doesn't really care if you think he's a good artist, but there's just something in him that has to come out, and he's painting stuff that no one's ever seen before. Anyway, very iconic stuff. Um, He's kind of spearheaded a new approach in regards to the use of art as a catalyst of faith. He believes that creative processes can stir our level of awareness, which is the first step in moving people to something better. He has tons of degrees, if you're interested in that kind of thing, Um, in addition to his bachelor's in graphic design and art from University of Missouri back in the day, where he also played baseball. He has a master's in divinity, a master of arts from Kendrick Lennon, a master's in liberal arts from Washington University, and a doctorate in ministry and preaching at the Aquinas Institute in St. Louis. Vince is more into lifelong learning as a pursuit of excellence and betterment and teachability than he is in necessarily having a lot of letters after his name. Um, So he's not some egghead, uh, but I just mentioned his credentials because it shows you what a curious man he is, how seriously he takes his ongoing formation and development. So moving on to a little bit more present and relevant stuff here for our purposes, Vince began ministering in urban St. Louis a few years ago, just as the Michael Brown incident was going down in Ferguson. 
troubled by his firsthand experience of the volatility of deep racial wounds and divisions, he began wondering how he, a white priest, could preach to a mixed-race congregation in such a context. This led him to pursue doctoral studies in preaching with a focus on the reconciliation circle as a tool for the encounter with and empowerment of the voiceless, suffering, marginalized people of Baden in inner-city St. Louis. In this conversation, we talk about the culture of encounter as facilitated by the Reconciliation Circle. We can talk all about what that is and how it can contribute to a renewal of preaching, restorative justice, and the new evangelization. Um, Vince is just a delightful guy. Uh, He's always been a breath of fresh air to me whenever we've traveled together, hung out together, gone to baseball games together. uh, I always feel like uh, it's usually worth at least three credits because you just cannot help but learn and grow when you're around Vince Nyman. Uh, He's a true gem of a man an artist, a priest, a friend of Jesus Christ, and a lover of God's people. And as if that were not enough, Vince is a newly published author of a children's book in which he did not only the story, but the illustrations. It's called Temple Soul Shine. It's available wherever books are sold. We're going to actually start out this conversation talking about that. So, You'll certainly come away with new hope for the cool things that God is doing in the margins and the peripheries with priests like Vince Nyman who are stepping up. Enjoy the show. Vince, welcome. Thank you, Charles. I understand that you have a children's book being published. What's that all about? Well, it kind of hit me by surprise. You know, I've done a lot of artwork, but never this particular genre. It took me by surprise in, in the fact that It all began when an eight-year-old African-American boy uh, just came out of nowhere in the neighborhood where I am ministering right now. And so he, the little guy just was, I was talking with people and he came up and was talking our ear off. The next thing I know, he's being a volunteer. The next, he is coming to church every Sunday and, and every Sunday just sitting with different people. Coming to church on his own, right? Not with his family. Coming to church on his own, yeah, and uh, I was, you know, and everyone was very amazed by that. So I thought, I got to do maybe a draw t-shirt I designed for him, and uh, had that delivered to his front door. He said, thank you, and then I thought, well, you know, I could maybe write a book, you know, a short story on this, and um, I just kind of did it really not thinking that it would ever be published, but as the story developed, it grew on its own. And uh, so I, I sent it into a, a publisher first try, and they, they're just delighted, and I'm amazed myself. What's it called, and what's the premise? The book is called Temple Soul Shine, and basically it begins with three eight-year-olds for Jesus who are looking for a, a temple, a church to go to, and uh, they journey, uh, they, they stick with it. There's, there's highs and lows, like there are highs and lows for for all of us but it also paints a picture of a, of a child's world and they find something uh, a biblical a biblical truth so it's a biblically focused book but it is enjoyable and simple for kids but for adults as wow. well so when's it coming out and where can we get it it should be coming out maybe a month or so and it's, it's published by covenant books uh, you can buy it on through amazon barnes and noble Proceeds go to underprivileged children in the area for the parish. 
Um, so I think you would enjoy enjoy the book. That's great. Sounds like a good gift uh, idea. So if I understand correctly, you did not only the story and the writing, but you did the illustrations too. Yes, I did. And that kind of also took me by surprise. I, I worked in marker on this. I wasn't typically never really comfortable with that genre, but it just all came together. And um, in some ways, I do look at it as there's some providence at work there. You mean God actually intervened? <laughs> yeah. God is not... Absent? Well, you know me too well. Um, now you're going to get me going here. But um, <laughs> does God ever show up? <laughs> I, you know, as an artist, I'll, I'll get that question asked a little bit. Uh, you know, a few times, and and quite frankly, I don't know if I've ever done a piece of artwork where I didn't feel the presence of God. It's full of mystery. All right, so let's get to your current life. You and I have known each other for over 20 years. We were classmates in the seminary. Don't you agree that probably of the, all the guys in our class, you and I probably were the two least that they were banking on? <laughs> well, I think you were the, you graduated distinction and I think I was extinction. Yes. <laughs> there were a lot I survived. People, there were a lot of people who would have wanted you to be extinct. But well, you know, here. all of us seminarians kind of have a little bit of chip on our shoulders. Probably a good thing. <laughs> people only knew what it was really like, huh? It wasn't, yeah, maybe it's a romanticized just a little bit too much. Yeah. So anyway, you've done, in many ways, a typical journey of, of a priest in a large archdiocese, you know, mostly suburban gigs. You went to Bolivia. For, it was going to be a five-year stint. It ended up being just one because you got attacked by parasites, right? Mm-hmm. You got, yes. you, you just, your constitution couldn't, couldn't handle it. But now currently you're in kind of an assignment that to me, after talking to you, seems kind of like where God wants you to be. Like it's all mm. been leading up to this point. You're in Baden, mm. right? Mm. Yes. And tell us a little about this current assignment and how it's kind of affected you and how it's kind of changed the way you've you've looked at the country, your ministry, and sort of the problems that we're facing right now. Well, I think, Charles, you know, our congregations and uh, parishes that we serve, they, they have a way of shaping us. A lot of times we, we're going into those experiences pretty much um, in the dark. And yet, all sorts of positive things, you know, can affect us, and, and maybe even the negative things. They, you know, everything we, we take in stride, and there's a, a learning point to everything. I would say, though, that um, probably one of my most significant experiences was Bolivia, and especially with regard to where I'm at right now, because once we leave the country and then sort of immerse ourselves in another culture, we first realize that well, the United States is not the center of the universe, and that this other culture, you know, has a whole lot to offer. Bolivia actually is a folk culture of capital of the world, where there is art and life all around. They are one. Art is not compartmentalized in a museum somewhere or even in a church, isolated in, in those settings, but it's part of life. It was not uncommon to just be walking along the street and all of a sudden here's a marching band. Uh, parades are common, costumes and so forth. The, the, their um, Mardi Gras that kicks off the Lent, their parade would go for three days. And interspersed would be Virgin Mother. and So, so there's a culture there that took time to kind of, it was an enjoyable process, but also very 
you know, interesting and, and enlightening process for, for me. So that when I was told to minister in the area where, where I'm at now, which is 91% African American in urban St. Louis, and also proportionately one of the most violent places in the United States, my understanding of culture served me well. First, in the sense of having somewhat of an open mind uh, to get in, learn the people, understand the people, listen to the people, and grow from the experience and, and minister to the, the suffering that, that was so visibly apparent. And even to this, to this day, even though I've been in the, my current ministry for five years, um, I'm continually learning, learning to minister the best, the best that I can. So that's enriching, hopefully, for the congregation as well as for me. So uh, thank you. Take us back. Back now to okay so if I get this straight early on in your ministry it was when Ferguson happened that's exactly true and Ferguson um, is kind of like in some ways the ground zero for the latest round of racial tensions sort of the lids being blown off things right now no no doubt about it and um, so you yeah. you were you're right near Ferguson right Right Ferguson's. next door, Ferguson. And you yeah. went, tell, tell us the story about how you went to the Ferguson prayer rally the night everything was going down and just mm-hmm. kind of how that affected you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at, the, at that time, that was, I believe, 2015. And I was actually the pastor of two parishes, uh, Visitation St. Anne, which was a little bit closer into the, the middle of the St. Louis city, and which was also an area bit, very much like Baden, where the violence and so forth was common. And um, someone, one of the parishioners just asked me on, on the, the day after the Michael Brown shooting if I would like to come to a prayer service. And I said, most, most certainly. And, I, and I've taken the attitude that I, I want to immerse myself into urban St. Louis. I was always typically one of the, sort of a, a white person from suburbia, uh, maybe coming into the city every once in a while, maybe to come to a baseball game or, or just, you know, some, some maybe a, a theater or, you know, movie or something, and, but not really seeing what was happening. Mm-hmm. And in denial about that. But now I'm thinking differently. I'm thinking, I need to know what's happening. I need to serve my people. And the best way to do that is to be with them and to accompany them. So they asked me, and I, without hesitation, I said, sure, I'll, I'll come with you. you know, and I know my communities were hurting from this incident. And I also learned, though, that this was not a common incident. But anyway, I showed up, and um, it was big, big-time rally. And I was concerned about... The, the, I was amazed by the talks, but I, but I was also a little concerned because it seemed to be getting out of hand a bit. And um, I seemed to just glad, glad to get it out of there. Tremendous anger, tremendous outrage, um, un, nothing I had ever seen before. I was glad I went there, but I was also felt good to sort of sneak, sneak out of there, you know. But, Did you get the sense that something big was about to happen? No, no question about it. The, the hurt and the outrage was just something that I don't know if we can really have the, the right words to describe that. It's, it's just tragic. It doesn't matter to me what color. If, if you're shot down eight times and you're unarmed, and I know there's different sides to the whole and different perspective on you know this and that, and and, and I don't want to just hear just bash uh, the, the law enforcement. And but um, it, for the black community, it was a, a devastating thing when whenever you see a young person go. And I think even among the the police force, they, they also hate to see. I think many of them hate to see something like that. So you were kind of fearful that things were getting out of control as far as the anger, and and then it proved to be true, right? Because wasn't there like uh, kind of all hell broke loose that night? It did. Um, 
What actually happened, though, when I made it out and I came back home and uh, turned on the TV, kind of processing this experience, and I was sitting there with another priest who was serving with me at the time at Our Lady of the Holy Cross Church, and we were kind of watching some of the, these events unfold on television where buildings were on fire or flame. It kind of looked a little bit like Armageddon. Uh, but then we turned the channel, and there's the Cardinals playing. Same night, but a different picture. They're mostly white fans are cheering home runs and excited about a baseball game. And I love baseball game, and I love sports in general. I think it's great for our community. But um, in my mind, I'm thinking something is wrong. Something is because wrong. you're seeing the contrast between the kind of the would you say there's kind of a happy obliviousness at the Cardinals game to what's happening in the rest of the, the city? Well, you know, it's it's kind of like you know being fair to our our city in that I think a lot of white peoples in the in the suburbs want to see a, a better life for urban blacks. But I think it's such a complex situation that um, most people find it hard to engage the conversation, and because it is such a complex situation. But still, I think that somewhere we have to begin to um, address this in a way that can be constructive. And, and productive for everyone in, in the city. And so it just how it happened at the same time, I'm considering a theme or an idea for my doctoral thesis. I was really concerned, well, how am I going to preach to a community that is, at least in Our Lady of the Holy Cross, is half white and half black? How am I going to address this? And at that time, I, I really was not sure. Um, and I thought that this might be the answer to my quest regarding my doctoral thesis. This might be something that I actually have to do. It's, a, it's an idea that kind of more or less found me. Now, talk us through your, your thesis is the circle style of preaching, how it empowers the voice of marginalized people. And uh, I found it to be very fascinating. When you sent me the thesis... You know, I who wants to read a thesis, right? You know, you're like, oh man, my friend sent me his yeah. thesis. I guess I Pretty better. Long. I guess I better read this, you know, because uh, he is my friend and everything. And I mean, knowing you, I knew it would be good, but you know, and it starts out with some pretty heady stuff. It was really well written. But what really got me is at the end when you started going through kind of like the practical applications of what this thing. So. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the basic premise of, of your thesis was that by empowering voices of people through this circle method, which we can get into what that is, you're getting input, you're getting feedback, so you're not just preaching at people. You're involved in kind of preaching becomes sort of the manifestation of an ongoing conversation in which you're processing the marginalized voices and then helping to apply that to the truths of the gospel and then getting more feedback so that the people are kind of learning to tell their own story and speak for themselves and so that you are not just some colonist speaking words and at people mm -hmm. but that you are truly a voice of spiritual guidance you know that's kind of being mm -hmm. informed from the grassroots up mm -hmm. in, in conjunction with the gospel mm -hmm. I know I'm very simplifying it but mm -hmm. maybe you can kind of go into some of your processes and findings here now, Charles I think that that's a good brief summary. A lot of times, as you know, when we um, give a good homily, a lot of times, you know, people will comment, you know, and they, I think our congregations like it when we give a good homily. And, and so they'll say, what's well, a good homily? But in our mind, we're thinking, well, why was that good? 
And how is that going to change their week? How will that homily empower those people to be focused on, on some issue? I'm not so sure. I have to be honest with myself. My homilies over the last 20 years, I don't know if they were that focused where I can say that my homilies, they may, I may have gotten a lot of good comments, but I'm not so sure my homilies took the level where they were really being empowered, and particularly their voice being empowered. So the Ferguson matter and the, and the whole racial issue that is now widespread throughout the United States um, kind of has made me refocus my idea of what a homily really needs to be. It can't just be something that is going to delight people, uh, certainly not just entertain them, or, or even you know having a good insight about something. Ultimately, that homily would have to empower them in the way of racial justice and reconciliation, which is one of our main challenges today in our modern-day United States of America, and maybe even throughout the world, which is more than it ever any other time in history, we have more conflicts regarding culture than at any time in history. And that's in large part because of the displacement among so many people. So United States cities are not the only areas that are experiencing these cultural conflicts. Um, so my thesis was, well, well where, do, where do we begin? How do we, where does a preacher begin to try to, you know, empower a voice? So as I began my research, uh, the first thing that I thought in my mind was being somewhat familiar or introduced to restorative justice on the one hand and also reconciliation circles, also known sometimes as peacemaking circles, which is really going way back, a throwback to more primitive times when people actually had the greater capacity to work out their conflicts through dialogue, through in, constructive dialogue. In real life, not on Twitter and on Facebook. Oh, far, far away from, from that because... Uh, this is real people sitting down together. That's exactly right. So uh, something more akin to what our present Pope is talking about when he highlights the, the need for the encounter with the person, especially the other people that we are not familiar with. So uh, no, there's no better way to engage in conflicting issues than by being proximate to others and, and really then beginning to listen to people, listen to those narratives that are so easily often oftentimes just uh, overlooked or misinterpreted. So the circle, uh, as a tested medium to facilitate a more intercultural reality where people are really learning the nuts and bolts of how do we listen to people and understand them and then begin this, this whole process of healing and being a, a community that's productive and, and, and enjoyable as it should be. So would you say that it would be correct to say that a circle is sort of a much-needed mechanism that provides a space for people to tell their stories? That's like the heart of it. I uh, learned some of the, the circle dynamics at the Precious Blood Center in Chicago, and there are such centers various places around the world, places like New Zealand, some places like Canada, Minnesota, and like I was saying, Chicago, and there, there may be other different sorts of models Okay, so it's not like a one-size-fit-all model, but there are basic principles in the circle that, that can really make it work for people. And so some of the, some of the main principles that are involved there is, yeah, that, that, that element of safety, where people feel safe, they can admit things that they've done, things that are hard to look at, they can be vulnerable, people listen, 
and they become empowered. And, and yet everyone's part of that. So everyone in the circle has those equal chances to tell their story and to listen to one another. And then in that way, we learn to have a voice. And so that then, then our, our common experiences become sort of in that vein where we are now actively engaged, actively on the out, outlook for the stories of other peoples. Give us a concrete example I mean, you don't have to give away names or details or anything, but give us a concrete example of just one circle that you've, that yeah. you've facilitated. Oh, sure. And, you know, I w- What does it look like? Basically, uh, one, one that just comes right into mind was once I had a circle, I formed a circle for the St. Vincent de Paul clients who were waiting in line for a package of goods, carryouts. Usually our, our Vincent de Paul is, is, a, is a well-organized organization. We, we have maybe 70 to 100 clients come in every Every single week. Okay. So I had, um, I had, a, I offered a circle to anyone. You can't force people to come into a circle. Do you um, literally sit in a circle? It's not only a literal circle, but it's, it's, it's as perfect as I can get in the sense that, um, and, and there is a reason for that, in the sense that I, I try to make it round. I try to make it, it's not going to be perfect in the sense that, you know, the people are perfect. We, we, we're, it's, it's, a, it's a circle of acceptance and accompaniment, but, there, but it is a perfect circle. And the reason for that is, and, and, and actually it was something that I had even experienced the first time I went in the circle, as I got in the chair and I moved it back, okay? So when you're in that circle, you're either in or you're out. And there's, there's something about the physical dimension that plays on our, on our mind. And, is there and, quality there? Is it, is it also meant to... That's right, that's right. So um, everyone's got to be in the circle. Uh, they can't move back out. If they do, we, we ask them politely, candidly. Um, you know, if, if you don't feel like you're ready now to enter the circle, you, you know, feel free to, to leave now. But if you're in the circle, you're in the circle. And, and the big part of that is, okay, we're all equal. You know, in the circle, it's not the pastor here. And if it's if your youth minister or your parent is there, uh, not here. We're all equal. We have equal chance to speak our mind and to be accepted for what we say. And then you give pointed questions? We give questions in the circle, but they're, it's, it's pointed, but it's pointed in the sense that they're directed to try to help facilitate storytelling. Um, so it's not like a, a yes or no question. Open-ended. It's, it was open-ended, but also in, in such a way that they answer that question with a story about themselves. So Vincent DePaul, getting back to your Vincent DePaul story. Yeah. Okay, so in that, in that sense, you know, and I, I can't remember exactly the, the questions per se, but what was significant about this one incident is that the three ladies, three African-American ladies, who were basically neighbors in the neighborhood, um, they had never spoken to one another, and that's because isolation kind of sort of has its way in our community, because of the fear factor or who knows what else, and also because people come and go. It, it's, uh, many, it's many people who are displaced, you see. So, but in the circle was, was three ladies and myself, and we began with, you could see the fear in the rise. You could see, you could see that idea, am I going to be accepted, and, and what, is, what exactly is this? But they had so few opportunities to really sit with each other that I think that's why these three women in particular came I'm not really sure but but they agreed to be there and we were planning on maybe talking for maybe a half an hour and it probably went for more than an hour and uh, where it began in fear it ended in hugs and tears and rejoicing and hope and, and many of them said you know uh, you're my neighbor and yet I've never known you but but it is such a delight to know you to hear you 
And so there is that empowerment, you know. That, but that's one instance of many where the, if you trust the process, good things happen. And, and nothing empowers another person more than listening to their story. Let them tell their story. So many, many times people are telling the story for them, and, you know, that's when we get off track. Let people tell their story. Tell us then how this works into preaching and how, what process did you follow? Where, what was your thesis that you're trying to prove? And then how did you demonstrate that through your thesis? And how did that relate to preaching? Well, well I think that the, when you looked at the philosophy of the circle and compare it to preaching, there's some major challenges there. Because when we as preachers, as you know, only one person does the talking, and that's the priest. And in that sense, the priest dominates this experience. How it's do not we, a level playing field. It's not a level playing field. It's almost similar to, say, a, a modern-day courtroom where the attorney dominates the situation and one or two people dominate. And the people themselves, the, the perpetrator, the victim, are sort of on the sideline. They, they're never allowed to speak. So the dynamics, if you look at it from that perspective, can be scary for people. And it might be one reason, who knows for sure, of why people maybe don't come to church because that's not where they're going to find their voice. And that's a, a very definite need today. So that's a big challenge. And I, and I think that the one way that I thought that we, I should at least explore would be how can I form a circle that in some way would complement the liturgical experience? And so what we decided to do is uh, actually was with a team as we were making these decisions because a collaborative effort is always going to be the best effort. And so we decided we'll, we'll have a circle after the liturgy on Sunday morning. So just to be clear for our listeners, you're not advocating or practicing displacing the homily with a circle. You're not changing the Catholic liturgy. Yes. Because yes, that's, that's what it. some people are going to say. Oh, you're just going to try to turn this into kumbaya. <laughs> Instead of preaching, we're all going to get... So you do your regular homily, uh-huh. like the liturgy asks. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. then afterwards, you meet with the people? That's exactly right. So the liturgy, the homily itself is not a circle discussion. So uh, true to that, true the, to the, you know, the process of the homily, which, which is the integrity of the, of the liturgy, is all intact. So um, afterwards, we have a circle. But when, I, when I'm devising this circle, thinking of the questions, I'm also thinking of those questions and the scripture readings in relation to the homily. So I'm the, the, the homily that I'm giving, in some way, is going to be related to these questions that are going to be part of the circle. But again, those questions are going to be pretty much said in a way that's going to allow people to tell their story. So, so I might even in my homily tell a, a story that, I'm, that would be maybe similar to the story that they're going to tell later on in their circle. So I'm kind of maybe giving them an example, right? So they're kind of working back and forth. And I think there's other positives there where, you know, I'm in the circle now, I'm hearing them. I'm hearing the local theology of the people. They're feeling empowered. And then when I, when I, the next Sunday, when I'm composing my homily, I'm going to be utilizing that information, that important data of, of who my people are. And that prevents, I think, the preacher from speaking over the head of a congregation. So it's really nice, I think, um, like one of the comments, and not, not long ago, the two African-American women commented to me, and they said, you know, how do you know what I'm thinking the night before Mass? 
you know, and, and, and how do you do that every week? Okay. And I was like, well, well, thank you. And they said, well, you must be doing your job. And I said, thank you. And, but, but see, that's now we've already moved from like how we began this conversation with people just saying, thank you for your homily. That's a nice homily. And they walk out the door. It's a nice thing to say. But now they're saying, how do you know that this is what I'm thinking? How do you know that these are the questions that I have? How, how do you know that, that all this is behind the scenes is going on? So, and that's credit to the circle experience. So was it hard to get people on board, like to, because this is a different thing, a new thing. It's, a, it's a th- something that kind of requires people to be a little bit more vulnerable than they're used to being. Was it hard to get people, I mean, you told them you're doing this thesis, to get them on board with coming to the circle and participating? Well, I think like in most things, it takes a little creativity. It takes a little working together with a team. So it basically wasn't all on my shoulders. But yeah, there are challenges to that. Uh, some ways around that was what we started to do on a quarterly basis. We would show a movie after Mass. So we had shown a couple movies such as Race, another movie that was called Hidden Figures, another movie that was called Fences, and some others. And we would show that movie, would advertise around the city, come to the to the so watch the movie. Not just for parishioners, anybody. That's right. Anybody could come, and people who came were not parishioners that came from the area. Some came people came from other areas, you know. Um, but the idea was, we're going to watch this movie not just as entertainment, or maybe or even to to get some meaning. Of course, we we chose movies that had such meaning, especially with racial overtones. But we made sure that we would have a circle after the movie so that we would get the most out of this meaning out of this movie where our stories were now going to pour out as a result of the movie. So we would have focused questions that would focus in our story, how they would relate to the story of the movie. And, and that was a powerful experience. So I, so I think... Were those well attended? Yes, very well. I think the first night we had 50, and usually we have you know, at least about 30 people. And did all the people participate? In the uh, just, just about. You know, it's a lot to ask of people to come to church to see a movie and then to see the circle, uh, but quite a few Quite a few did. You know, not everyone's going to be able to do that. But but those who then experience that circle, that once once you experience it and you see the powerment of that, um, there's really no turning back. People loved it. Absolutely. In fact, uh, going back to the circle that we would usually do just on Sunday, it's not uncommon for that circle group to meet for two hours. So that's I think speaks for itself. It's a, you know, not that we're forcing them to stay for two hours, but but this is something they're doing on their own. As another manifestation of your circle research, you also did tell us about your Tuesday hospitality groups and the data you gathered from that and your circle experience from that. Yeah, certainly, Charles. I, I think uh, there is you know, a whole new uh, can of worms in a sense that you know, right now, currently, our, our parish has a transitional house for women who, who many of them had, had been homeless. And we would not have that transitional house, as far as I know, the first transitional house in a parish in the St. Louis metropolitan area. We would not have that unless we had a circle and a hospitality Tuesday, kind of like a coffee stand, lemonade stand. Tell us, walk us back. Um, Again, again, that wasn't even my idea. It was uh, people thinking, people coming together, uh, sort of with a new enthusiasm about uh, how can we minister to the people? How can we accompany the the people in this area who are suffering, but in such a way that it's not top down? It's, it's, It's more in an equal playing field, like a circle is equal playing field. So um, I can't say which, who, per, what person uh, came up with that idea, but it was a group of us, and so we thought that uh, we would give this a try. 
sky. And to our amazement, it just took off from the beginning. We, when we went down, not knowing, well, we're, are people down there going to accept us? A lot of the people down on the, on the area, the street that we do this, or they either came out of prison or they were maybe involved in the drug situation or, or, or some tragedy had happened to them. And um, how were they going to receive us? But amazingly, they received us from the beginning. From the beginning, it's been a, a learning curve that we, we we've learned how to accompany, how to listen as as a. So you would just show up on Tuesdays on Broadway, right? Which is a kind of a heavily trafficked intersection, mm-hmm. um, but also kind of a high risk neighborhood. And you would offer lemonade, coffee, things like that, and just provide a space for people to get to know you. That's exactly right. It's it's connections. It's. You know, in some sense, empowering people or just trying to encourage people, just let people know that someone is there that cares. I mean, there's very little that really we could do. But we, I think we were amazed that just by being there and uh, saying hello and, and waving and, and talking to them, we were amazed how much that did do for people. Uh, and so now that we've probably been two years into it, it doesn't seem that long at all. It's not hard to, to get those volunteers to, to come and show up. Now, was it hard at first? Um, yes and no. I think, I think some, some people tried it out. And it just wasn't for them. They weren't there. Uh, some people tried it out and and didn't like it at first, but then it just kind of caught on as as they sort of learned this new spirituality of the encounter with with the stranger. And I think it just kind of just renewed our energy. You know, it wasn't really as it, comparing it to other, a lot of other programs, maybe that that you might try to start in the parish. It always seems to to be a grind sometimes. This would be one of the easier ones. Now, just to be clear, these Hospitality Tuesdays, your agenda. It was not to quote unquote proclaim the gospel explicitly. You weren't giving any explicit religious instruction or proposals. You were just out there to be with and to offer hospitality and get to know people. Is, is that correct? Um, to, to a certain extent, but it, but not in the sense that we would. Although connection is first and listening is first, but not in the sense that that we're going to just cut out any of our spirituality, our faith that we should want to share. But it's made mostly starting at a starting point where the people are. And ironically enough, when we took that position, most of the people wanted to talk about religion. They could see religion in us. They all asked us, what church are you from? Okay. (laughs) And uh, all we had to do was point up at the steeple. We have a very tall, high steeple we're all proud of. But we're making that steeple come to life by being full of life where the people are. And so, so the people, they, they um, commonly want us to pray with them. And they, believe it or not, even though the major, vast majority are not Catholic, they love rosaries. They absolutely love rosaries. <laughs> and uh, when I try to explain, well, what, what this rosary is, you know, they see the cross. And it does something spiritual about that. Some of them will put it on their neck. And I know that maybe we're not supposed to do that. But I'm like, who says you can't do that? Okay, <laughs> who says? Okay, and um, they they love those rosaries, and, and I kind of tell them this way about that rosary, the prayer it is. You know, it's it's you know, we pray to the mother of Jesus. Okay, the prayer Hail Mary. But but really, when you get back to the history of the rosary, uh, it didn't really begin that way. It began with any scriptural quote and say that over and over again. And get into that meditation. Get into that contemplation. Get, it's the music in the background. So I'll try to tell the people, what, I ask them, what, when they want that, they'll say, what's your favorite scripture piece? Okay, and maybe it's Jesus saying that I am the vine and you are the branch. And, and I'll say, well, say that. Say it 50 times. And every time you say it, just move your finger from one beat to the next. 
and let that sit in. A lot of times they'll, they, they'll listen to that and they'll, because they, I think they trust me. They all call me father they, as if you know, I'm their, their true pastor. But, and actually when they, when they just are listening to that, I feel like they're in prayer right then. I feel like they're in prayer right in that moment. So I know God's looking out for it. I know Mary's there. So then you're, with regard to the Tuesday Hospitality Group, your circle, would, would it be with the guests you were serving or would the circle be afterwards with the volunteers? Yeah, we're kind of open to that. And sometimes it's, it's, it's one or, or the other or both. It kind of depends. You know, it kind of depends who might come along. But uh, primarily, I would say it has been for uh, our volunteers because the circle is also a wonderful way to help us process what just happened. So when, especially early on when we would we do the circle, we, we were amazed at all the stories, all these conversations that we had. And it was to the point where how do you, it was so much. How do you process it? Well, process it together. So we would have that circle afterwards and we would go around and around and around, maybe another hour, you know, telling each other the, the names of the people we met, their story. And the hope that was born from those stories was, was quite amazing. It was like we're writing another gospel. It's like the Paschal mystery now is being lived. Wow. Yeah. So now I, I got to ask you, tell us about Blue. Blue. Blue is, um, blue is a special, um, it's a, actually the talking piece. And uh, the blue, it's a little uh, endearing, um, kind of like a teddy bear, but it's a turtle. And uh, a, a sister, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, had actually, has a gift for making these little hugging kind of little animals. Usually they're a dinosaur that look just lovable. And so uh, Blue, I don't know where the name came from, but um, it just uh, maybe that was the first uh, name that came to my mind when I, I saw the turtle. But it just kind of goes with the whole uh, atmosphere of, of safety and, and gentleness and caring. And uh, so I think that, you know, the, the, these symbols, these little ritual symbols all have a way of adding to the whole meaning of the experience. So the way the circle works is you can only talk if you have blue. That's exactly right. Yeah. So and that's going to be a challenge. And sometimes I might even be the first offender. You know, but the, the, the only real instructions that we give going in in the circle is, OK, this is blue. We always pass it in this direction. We never throw it across the group. Uh, nobody dominates this this circle. You know, don't don't talk for 10 minutes with blue. OK. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but you can you get blue when you blue is, is handed to you. You can you can share. Uh, but if you don't wish to share, well, we, we value that. We respect that. Maybe you're not ready. Just pass blue to the next person next to you. So we, blue kind of takes on a life of its own. Yeah, blue, blue. So we, we respect blue. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you foster a kind of a radical equality of voices. How do you, you talked a lot about safety. But now in my experience, it's people have been burned. And it's very hard to get people to open up, e even among friends, to talk mm -hmm. about things that are meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, that's really kind of a tough nut to crack, but it sounds mm -hmm. like you're doing it. And you said in a conversation we had recently that you do it by creating like radical safety, mm -hmm. radical acceptance. Tell us a little bit more about the practical aspects of creating an environment whereby people feel safe enough to talk about meaningful things. Mm -hmm. Well, Charles, it's one thing to just talk about how you know, values can shape us and and how we should be this way and that way. But it's a whole nother level. It's a whole new ball game when people are experiencing it right in front. So there's no better way to, to teach safety by being an instrument of feeling safe, a, a model of being safe, of being comfortable with who you are in relation to God 
and our common humanity so that we're not superior to others and we're not inferior to others. Can we embody that? And when we embody that, that's our best witness. That's our best evangelization. Um, so there's nothing that's going to put people in that frame of mind, in that atmosphere of safety, than you yourself embodying that. And so, you know, as the circle keeper, you try to make sure that, that you, have, you have it together yourself personally. So if you are an ideological person, if you're a person who loves hiding behind categories, if you're a person that hasn't done a lot of the inner work to feel comfortable in your own skin, if you haven't confronted your own demons, so to speak, Mm -hmm. then you probably are not going to be effective at making other people feel safe. Is that a fair statement? You hit it right, right the nail on the head. Um, I mean, you, you may be in that circle. You may be saying a good game. You may be saying all the right things. But if you are not embodying that, what are you really teaching the people? And likewise, the, the priest who's at the at the, the ambo. If you're out there, you you gave a good homily. You you said it well, and you you opened the scriptures. You you expounded on that really well. But what if you personally are not authentic? Yeah, well, we've all seen that, right? We've seen celebrity preachers mm-hmm. who talked a great game, who lit up crowds, and who crashed and burned personally. Um, I want to dig into that a little bit. How have you arrived at a place where you feel comfortable enough in your own skin, where you feel safe in your own skin, where you have overcome the fears? Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, in order to be, you, you and I were talking yesterday about, about what it takes to lead a circle effectively, kind of along these lines. And, you know, you were saying just then how you, you can't really fake it. You have to mm-hmm. be. But how do you get to that point? Because you and I both know many people, clergy including, mm-hmm that they're not there yet. They're not comfortable with their skin. So the default tends to become, I'm going to hide behind my office. I'm going to hide behind my position. I'm going to hide behind my ideology or I'm going to, I'm going to get a certain tribe that's going to back me. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you get to the point where you have become an effective circle communicator that can sort of spread mm-hmm. a culture of safety starting with yourself? Well, I think you know, you're describing maybe what... The Pope was saying that some priests, well, you know, a lot of his words are directed to us priests, and that we should not be CEOs. We should not just be hidden behind a desk. And then he, I think he even said that, quite frankly, he said some priests scare him. Um, and I'm like, I hope I'm not one of those priests. He says we should smell like a sheep. The yeah, we should, should smell like a sheep. Yeah, and, and what I take from that is that, look, um, isolation is, is our enemy. And in contrast to isolation, you have proximity. And let the process work for us where we, that's right, are out among the sheep. As in a sense equals, in a sense equals, where we are learning from other people, putting ourselves in a position. So it's not unilateral. It's not unilateral. Exactly. We, yeah. we have something to offer them. Yeah. yeah. They have something to offer us. That's right. And, and, and so we, if, we can, if we can apply that principle in every situation, we're, we're just going to be better, a better off person. And, and that's regarding something, if we get back to the whole issue of racism, which I, again I address in my doctoral thesis, is that we, we cannot allow isol- any peoples to be isolated and not think that violence is going to not take over. So we gotta, it has got to begin with being a community, but, but being an authentic community where people's stories are heard the true stories are heard, not just something you get on TV, not just something you get on the, the great technology that we have, but right with people. We're looking in their eyes and we're sensing 
um, the person and, and feeling the suffering and the suffering behind the suffering. That's where we, we've got to be. I want to ask you about something you recently said, the suffering behind the suffering. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think, you know, if you take something like violence, for instance, or just material, having these material needs where we're just going from not knowing what we're going to eat. Um, most of the children, in fact, in Baden, uh, there was a study on this. Uh, they were not being fed by their school. They were just basically eating yogurt every day. Well, that's definitely suffering when, when our bellies are suffering and then, you know, we're, we're more prone to illness and so forth. But, but what about the suffering where we're not feeling loved? The, the suffering of having to hear gunfire every night, the, the, the suffering of not feeling safe inside our heart. And especially at those early ages where we are molded, that we're, we're molded in such a way in those early ages that that's gonna carry, we're going to carry that throughout our life. So, I mean, what, what, what do you call that when you, you're carrying a burden um, that begins at early ages where, where you're not safe, where you're not, we don't experience the love, say, a parent, or, and you're just overcome with abuse of one kind or another, which then down the road leads to, say, addictions and addictive personalities, inability to work, inability to focus, inability to do schoolwork. Those chronic symptoms are really symptoms of deeper issues. So I think that, you know, it's one thing to, to say that, but, but it is on, like, again, another level where it's something that we kind of have to see. And, and for me personally, when I encounter that suffering, when I see that person who feels hopeless, you will see that in, your, in their eye and their emotions, and that will never leave that will never leave me when I encounter that. It, it's a, a suffering that, that I, I think when we talk about accompanying others, I think in some sense we're, we're called to sort of share in that experience, even though we'll not, probably never know the level of that suffering. So would you say it's like heart suffering? It's something deep. It's something deep. It's something very tragic. And perhaps even, it, you know, we could, we could even say that it's a very closely akin to the crucifixion of Jesus. And maybe it even explains why so many in, in an area such as ours has such faith in Jesus, because they live the crucifixion. So I want to also talk to you about this idea of proximity, especially with regards to proximity versus isolation. Because you've said isolation is kind of the enemy. And you talked about that experience of the three African-American ladies who were neighbors. Mm -hmm. But because isolation kind of runs the table in your neighborhood, they didn't even know each other. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're creating a space where these strangers can become friends, be, start to get to know each other, start to feel less isolated, more empowered. But I want to I ask you to maybe unpack this idea of proximity because oftentimes in the Catholic world when we talk about the new evangelization and we talk about you know why are people leaving the church you know we we tend to reduce it to issues of doctrine you know, the Pew study says that they don't believe in the Eucharist anymore or it's they don't like the church's stance on homosexuality or whatever and it's always this intellectual you know ideological solution you know it's like oh it's 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 always because of ideas you know the ideas that we adhere to mm -hmm. And oftentimes I think that's the sort of the hermeneutic that we address the issue with, you know, like faith issues, intellectual issues. But to me, the paradigm of isolation versus proximity is something that I think Pope Francis has been addressing. And maybe it's the issue behind the issue. And maybe just talk a little bit about, you've said that proximity is key. 
Well, Charles, I think God, basically, starting at that point, from a theological basis, I, I don't think that God likes all these walls that are between these divisions that are, that are going on today. When all the certain peoples are supposed to live in this area, and this class of people is in this area, and this class, and those, those divisions are widening, the, the divisions of rich and poor, the divisions of culture, the cultural divisions, black and white, Hispanic, white, um, the divisions of the learned and the unlearned, um, the aged and the young. And as far as when I look at the scriptures, I see Jesus, I see the, the presence of God working in the other direction, where cultures and peoples are constantly coming together. And there's plenty of opportunities for this. So we can look at all these divisions and sort of curse the darkness, or we can see these as opportunities. I mean, there's so many of them where we can begin to, through encountering people, to sort of arrive at a new identity. So say, for instance, uh, in Our Lady of the Holy Cross Church, we are half white, half black, and there are cultural differences. We have unique tastes regarding music, for instance, and music is a big part of the liturgy. And of course, uh, the, the style of preaching, of black preaching, of white preaching. Well, how do we come together in a such a way that one of those cultures does not dominate? How, how do we do that? And so you know, we, can, we can pride ourselves in saying, okay, well, I belong to a multicultural community. Uh, but that's really not saying anything because that's basically, okay, you have one culture right next to another culture. I prefer to look at it as the attempt to arrive at an intercultural community where both cultures begin a process of integrate a true integration through listening um, so that they would then arrive at an altogether new identity, one new identity. Well, historically, that's not easy. Um, there are instances when it, it works, and when it does work, it's a powerful experience for the culture. I think, if you, let's say you just look at the contribution of the African-American culture in the United States. The African-American people have contributed to our culture in the way of sports, athletics, in the way of the academic world. They've made contributions in the way of dance, in the way of literature, and in the way of uh, music, especially music. We would not have the music that we have, say even the, the, the music of the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, without an African-American soul to that. We would not have Elvis Presley without an African-American contribution, and in many, many instances. So just think, if you took the, the corpus of black America and you allowed them their full potential to contribute on an even greater degree, just think the, of the positive that that would have with our community at large. And, and now I'm just specifically saying blacks and whites, but perhaps we could also include the Hispanic peoples or the Asians peoples that, or any of the immigrants that come in. Perhaps we should just look at it differently and, and see these people as potential co contributors to the culture. It might be a different face of America, much, much more different than what we got today. Rather than see them as competitors for a limited pie. Yeah, that's, I think that the crux of that is that you know, we tend to maybe think that uh, oh, those people are taking our jobs and um, th those people are causing the, the blame for, for this and that. There's a blame game. And perhaps, you know, it, you know, anybody can look at some of the ugliness of the stuff that's going on. And I, and I think we can't deny when things go array in, in a culture. But 
together with that, there, there's a definite need to look at the, the, well, the potential of people, but also to, to see people who, who have even gone the wrong path. May, maybe we can revive them. Maybe we can restore their lives by first maybe looking at the structures that have brought on some of those behaviors and so forth, and having maybe just a little bit more trust in the human person and the, the capacity that God has given us. You were talking uh, earlier about you see things differently now than you did three, four, five, ten years ago. And you were even sharing with me about how you, you've come to an appreciation of what a white country we are. Talk a little bit about those thought processes and how your last five years have kind of changed the way you've thought about your identity as an American. That's a great question. First, my experience with people of different color. In my formative years, I lived in Rancho Cordova, California. And I distinctly remember knowing other black kids in the area. I remember, I, can, I know them by name, especially a guy named Milto Smith, Larry Connors. Some of these played on teams that I played on. And, and so that if I were to meet them now, uh, it would be like meeting a brother. One of the benefits that I've had in my experience is that I have had that encounter, that, that proximate encounter at an early age. But still, I don't believe that's quite enough in this day and age, because of the complexity, because of the structures that are in place that create these disparities between the different peoples. And so I think not really until the, uh, even though I felt like I, I would always have really no problem in relating with people of difference, Hispanic, Asian, black, um, and then also being in Bolivia and being able to really have no problem integrating with the different people. But not until really Michael, the Branco Brown incident when I began to really explore the meaning of racism and really learning the structures there that are so hidden in society. And it's hard really to ever pinpoint, okay, where is the problem? Where, where does it go wrong? When we, when we speak about something like racism, which is really an abstract term, we're really we're talking about culturalism, it's really hard to see it as, a, say, a personal sin. It's more like a social sin. And so how do you tell a people that, that they're guilty of social sin? And mostly people, in, especially, say, in parishes, in, say, suburbia, we're, we're interested in, in issues that belong to in our own backyard. There's going to be plenty of issues there to go around, to, to to work on. So what do you do with the idea that, well, this neighborhood is connected to this one and, and, and how it's all connected? It becomes a very complex matter, one that takes a lot of personal investment. So I think I've tried to tell myself, well, if I'm going to make, let's say, like give myself five goals of how I can begin a process here where I can learn about some of these unjust systems that exist in our society. Well, one, one thing I can do, well, I can, obviously, I can pray. I can, I can devote more time to processing my experiences. I can maybe tell myself, well, I'm going to read something about race maybe three times a, a week. I'm going to maybe check out some movies that maybe I wouldn't otherwise go to, like some movies that, that have a racial meaning to them. I'm going to maybe go to some panels of discussion. I'm going to maybe bring this subject up with some of my priest friends or, or, or people in the parish. Um, so there's, when you look at it that way, there's a lot of those small things that we can do to gradually kind of get into this process and to learn more. And, and, and actually, there's a lot more that I have to learn. But, I've, but what I have learned, I've learned it by setting these small goals for myself and being committed to these goals. Vince, recently I listened to an audiobook by uh, a British author. It's called 
Pope Francis, the great reformer. And it was really, really good, really inspiring. And he just kind of told the story about Pope Francis, which was great. And here's what struck me. So Pope Francis' priority for the poor, you know, his priority for the, the peripheries and the margins. It struck me that in Argentina, it was a Catholic country. The poor people were Catholic and they spoke the same language. The only reason that people didn't go there was because they didn't want to be bothered. So when Pope Francis went into the margins and the peripheries, he went into the slums, he went into the Vijas Miserias, as they call them. They welcomed him with open arms because they were just waiting for a priest, let alone a bishop, to take an interest in them. So I was asking myself, well, how can I go to the margins and peripheries? And it's so much harder because of what you're talking about, the walls that have been built in our culture. I mean, like I'm at a parish where it's mostly white and you got to cross the Rock River to go into Western Rock Island to be around black people. And we, we set it up so that we don't ever have to rub elbows with the black people. It's very hard for me to even find contexts where I can go and mingle with black people in a way that doesn't seem forced and contrived. We have a Catholic school system that seems like it's for the upwardly mobile whites. And it keeps our kids from ever mingling with the people on the margins and the peripheries, particularly in our area, black people. And so there's like all kinds of layers of difficulty that even prevent us. If I, let's say I woke up tomorrow and said, I'm going to totally devote myself to the margins of the peripheries, it would largely be neglecting my, my middle-class people to go and minister to these other people who I'd have no relationship with and really have no natural contexts for developing relationships with. So I'm thinking about how much of your journey, including your journey to do your thesis on the circle and how it, it leads to voices of empowerment amongst marginalized people, uh, how much of that is dependent upon you being placed in a parish that's, that's poor, largely African-American, people of color. So how can we find ways of breaking through the walls and the barriers to to have greater proximity with the marginalized in our culture today you know the I, right away in my when you, when i hear you say that I, I i bend there you know and i and i'm still there sometimes like what what can i do i i often feel like the problem is so big that you just want to give up sometimes or just um, not care even but but i think that to fight against that voice is probably the, the one of the best things that we can do because that idea of not caring it, it, it it's bad for a society when you have that when you have cars that are just don't care about bonding with other cars on the highways and so forth so or when you have a community that's just not wanting to go out and vote or or, or want to be part of community events because they give up because of what's going on. So having, you know, bringing hope into that arena is a crucial kind of milestone on, on our own personally. Yeah, I think like I was thinking of how the, uh, in the scriptures where the Pentecost was described as these different areas who were coming together suddenly, the people from the Parthenians and the the, the people from Medes and, and Samaria, we're, we're all now listening to the disciples and apostles after Jesus' resurrection. And they were now, for the first time, coming together as one. Where prior, they were all a different culture. Prior, they were all interested in their own situation. But now suddenly, an event occurred, the resurrection occurred, where they're being brought together. And they're listening, they're being moved, they're being stirred for the first time. 
ever in their history, those groups are coming together. And so I, sometimes I think, well, I'll really be a believer in Pentecost when I see people from, say, all these rich areas, say, around St. Louis, Millwood, Clayton, and so forth, and on and on. And when I see people from the outside, even, even further out, interested in areas in, in the urban St. Louis, not just Baden, but there's others. And maybe we can extend this to the United States, because this is a pattern that is in ironically enough, in all of the cities. People are being left out. But what about all the people who are not left out? What about if they got together and they, we found all of those people <laughs> coming together in places of need, working together and saying, we can change this. We can help change this. But, but not in the sense that we're going to go in, you know, people from the outside are going to come in there and, and push everyone around and do it their way. No, they're going to come in and listen to this situation and in some way help people, empower people to help themselves. You know, I think there's a delicate process there. But I would say it starts with people being interested in places that maybe it's too hard to escape from. So when is the seminary going to hire you? to be the homiletics professor and start teaching people how to do uh, preaching circle style? Well, um, you know, I'd be delighted to, to share, you know, something that, that really is beyond me. I'd, I'd be delighted if the circle was in, you know, not say just a seminary, but in schools and in kindergarten classrooms and parish activities because I, I think the experience itself would re rejuvenate any group of people. So I, you know, just like typically, I think it's always nice when renewal is happening. Um, I don't think like the, the circle necessarily is a, the one thing. I think there's, I'm sure, a lot of wonderful things that are going on in the seminary and in, and in the schools and so forth. There's a lot of good work. The, the spirit is moving in many ways, but I'm fortunate that the circle has found me and, and that I'm able to contribute, at least in my parish, in a, in a place where God has put me and, and I see the fruits of this. The more it can grow, the better. And, and I think that it is growing worldwide. You know, this isn't just something that is just taking off the ground here in Baden. There are books on this and there is a, a definite science to this. Um, it, it has shown that it is bearing fruit in the lives of of many people. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's not the magic bullet, but what it is, it's a mechanism that's providing a much needed space for dialogue where there is no space right now. And creating those spaces seems to be of utmost importance. You know, and going back to Pope Benedict, who I don't think it's nearly enough credit. You know, I love Pope Benedict, I love Pope Francis, whatever. Pope Francis talks about the culture of encounter, but you know, Pope Benedict, when when he did the Regensburg address, remember that thing? that talk at Regensburg University and it ended up, there were some comments he made about Islam. Oh, yeah. And then it ended up causing some stir and there were some nuns murdered, you know, and Islamic people got really up in arms, whatever. But his ultimate point of that talk was that the answer to violent, ideologically driven conflict is dialogue. And that's going to be the real war on terror is strike out terrorism at its roots, which is to strike out fear, which is to overcome the fear of the other and to listen to the other. What might you say to somebody who say, I, I want to hear more. I, I, I want to find some basic on-ramps to be able to start integrating the circle method into my ministry. It's a noble effort first, but it's an effort that will take some personal in investment in this. There are books on restorative justice. 
I think that might be a good place to start. Um, I think that we in the United States and, and Western culture in general have maybe bought into the legal system as thinking that's going to help cure our many social ills. I think we need a court system, definitely. And good laws. And laws and so forth, and we need to be law-abiding in many ways. But at another level, when we look at the process, we think of the victim, we think of the perpetrator and the healing that is needed. That court process is not really conducive to the healing of those people. Um, and all those who are affected. So uh, when there is a perpetrator that, and a, wrong, a wrongdoer, the people who are affected are well, way beyond just the one victim. It's, it's the whole community that's affected. And in fact, it's the, the whole United States is, is affected by this. How do we process and heal from this? We're not going to heal if, we're, if we stay isolated from the situation, if we're not involved in some kind of process of discussing this and, of, and getting the encouragement and feeling the empathy of others that truly care for us. So, so we need, definitely need more mechanisms that allow these healing processes to occur. So I, you know, I think that I think that would be a good area of just the the whole this whole new level of, of justice regarding rest, uh, the restorative nature, the need to restore peoples, and not just writing them off, not thinking that just putting people in prison is going to be the ultimate answer. I mean, in some instances, um, that that will will help our society become safer, but. You know, there's got to be more with those who return. You know, how can we kind of rebuild their lives? How can society really have more opportunity for people that have kind of gone astray for whatever reason? And how can we make them, allow them to be productive again? And so, but then I, I think, you know, other... There's, there's books. I think it takes some reading. I think there's also opportunities to, to get training. I know there is a Precious Blood Center in Chicago, which is where I got my training. To be a circle leader. Yes, yeah. So I, I definitely think that um, the, there's a, a training aspect to this process. It's a very simple process, but it, but there's there's a lot there in the way of helping the circle cultivate a sense a sense of values and and also just uh, sort of the intangibles about how we can be a community and 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 work on it's, dialogue is something to work work at. And I, and I think that the whole thing with the Pope Benedict, I think if any as great as a pope as he as he was. There's still that struggle of interacting with with cultures. That that's a monumental task, and and it's very easy to to say one word, and 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 yet a culture will maybe it could be a trigger word for for someone in a in a culture and not really see the gist of what he's trying to to say. So that that would be a perfect example of why why it's a process, a longer process of, of trying to understand what what are people what are they experiencing and and how are they expressing those those needs that they have. Yeah, you talked in your thesis about the difference between punitive and restorative justice, and that was really, really a kind of a light bulb moment for me. And I, I think you're right that restorative justice is not really a concept that's in the American. Our, our approach is if you break the law, we get locked up and forgotten about. It's kind of what Pope Francis kind of talks about, the throwaway culture, you know, where we just write people off. And uh, again, you talk about the contributions that are lost, the potential contributions that are lost. So any closing words of, of wisdom for us here? Oh, well, I, I just hope maybe you get to read my Temple Soul Shine book. <laughs> <laughs> just, just read the children's book. That, that, that's all we want. It's a, it's a delight, and it, it'll help underprivileged children. And um, 
I, I think I, you know, anyone who is interested in, in this difficult subject of, you know, racism and, but also, but also regarding, you know, it's, it's beyond that in a sense that it's, it's beyond, it's, it's, it's getting to, it's getting to people together in any situation and being more human. You know, when I was growing up and, and most people around my generation, you know, I'm 56 years old now, we were always out there in the street playing games in the evening. You know, we were home eating dinner together. Everybody knew everyone. And, and I, just rem I just remember happy memories of growing up. And uh, being on, having the opportunities to, to be on a, a team, a basketball team, a football team, a soccer team, a bit, you know, that was just a, a joy. And I, I think today with the isolation that we have and, you know, the, the cultural things that are, there's a lot of things working against, especially families and children. And I think we need to start rebuilding our communities and uh, from the ground up and um, the circle might be one one way i think that we're going to need more ways to get people to come together from their isolation and not just your personal isolation of saying being locked in your house but communities isolated from one another we, we have to make a greater effort to encounter one another well thanks for being here thanks for your contributions and uh temple soul shine at bookstores everywhere, including Amazon, starting in about a month. Vince, we'll hopefully we'll hear from you again. Thank you very much, Charles. It's good to be on.